Tubals in a China Shop is brought to you by these great companies that are giving us money to let you listen to their stuff. Bullshit, Kyle. We make this show. We make this show. You and me. Tubals in a China Shop is brought to you by us. <laughs> Someone's got to pay the bills, Dan, because it's not our trading. <laughs> <laughs> All right, roll them. You are listening to an entertainment program put together by a company called Financial Ineptitude. Anything said on this show is not an endorsement or professional advice. Would you really want to tell a court of law you were suing us because you thought taking financial advice from two idiots on a podcast put out by Financial Ineptitude was a good idea? Really? Clown hats on your face. All right. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to the China Shop. We are kicking open the doors for another exciting guest episode as the smooth and spiffy Salem Abraham from the Abraham Trading Company joins me. But before we dive into today's discussions, I'd just like to take a moment to thank our friends at Trade Pro Academy and Orderflow Labs. If you're looking for institutional quality education, be sure to check out tradeproacademy.com. And if you're into trading futures, you'll definitely want to check out the custom tools and studies at orderflowlabs.com. I'll have those links in the episode description. And be sure to reach out to us with your suggestions, corrections, questions for future guests. You can do that via email at twobulls at financialineptitude.com. That's the number two. Or you can join our free Discord server where a bunch of amazing people gather every day to share our struggles and lessons learned with other like-minded market aficionados. Be sure to have those links in the episode description as well. Now that we got all the businessy business stuff out of the way, let's get to know today's guest. Salem, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, Kyle. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Oh, no, no, it's my pleasure. Anytime I see someone who's been a hedge fund manager for 30 plus years, that's somebody I definitely want to talk to. Sure. So uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? I mean, I kind of touched on some of your experience, but maybe you walk us through like your journey. Like, how'd you get into the markets? Sure. Well, I, I've, you know, I grew up in a, and I still live most of the time in this small town in Texas called Canadian, Texas. It's a town of 2,500 people grew up a, and grew up really, I could do one thing and that's math. I could, you know, mm-hmm. a slow reader and a poor speller, but I could really do math. And I loved math and I, and I still love math. And, you know, you like the things you can do well. And so I went off to Notre Dame I hustled through Notre Dame in three and a half years um, and got a finance degree there from Notre Dame. Um, and I uh, came back to Canadian, ended up marrying uh, my high school sweetheart. We got married. We've been married 34 years and um, yeah, I have eight kids. And so there's Ooh. not not a lot to do out here in the country, Kyle. So we had to make our own entertainment. <laughs> but we um, we were blessed with with eight kids and all all's well there. But we but um, but what I did at Notre Dame was I was trying to figure out a way, how do I make a living remotely? So it's interesting, you know, after COVID, how easy it is to do that remotely. But, you know, if you're living out in the country and you like living out in the country, you try to think, how do I do something from there? And and as I was looking at different things, and uh, I was introduced to Jerry Parker. Jerry Parker is a terrific a legend in the futures uh, trading business, one of the turtles uh, for those people who know what the turtles are, worked for Richard Dennis and Bill Eckhart. But um, I met him. I was still in college, and he started describing to me a math model, um, mm-hmm. the idea that the ma- a math model could be used to trade futures and to make money in the futures markets. Hmm. And that, to me, was, I said, if it's a math puzzle and it pays money, I'm in. Right. And so that was kind of the start of my journey. And uh, so I started doing research at Notre Dame and um, during summers. And then in my last semester at Notre Dame, started trading 
um, in the fall of 87, which was an interesting time to trade given the crash on October 19th, 1987. So, so that's how it started. And I started this, you know, basically using math and uh, to figure out what and, and historical data to have it be predictive, you know, going forward. Mm-hmm. And that's what I, and that's what I did and traded for 31 and a half years. Um, you know, over that period, we managed at our peak about 630 million. Um, oh. we, we, um, at, you know, and, and it was monthly liquidity. So people could come in and go out and we averaged a net, net rate of return to clients of 13.1% net over the 31 and a half years. So that was, that was uh, front end loaded though. The first 21 years were about 20%. The last 10 were flat. So right. like a lot of managed futures traders, we certainly struggled the last 10 years we traded and we stopped doing that in 2019. We still had, we had $206 million still under management, but we just, we didn't think we were doing a great job and the markets really weren't, didn't have the opportunities that we were wanting. So we, I would say we were really, we're not one of the very top, top futures traders, but we were, we were. I think if you're doing it successful for, if you're doing it successfully for 20 plus years, I think, uh, I think you can call yourself one of the top. Yeah. So we had, so we, my team and I had a great time and then, um, but we've transitioned here in the, uh, in 18, we started a mutual fund that came about. It's interesting how the mutual fund came about because I was on investment committees for, uh, really from the mid nineties mm-hmm. and, um, you know, uh, community foundation there in Amarillo, Texas, the Amarillo area foundation. And then, um, on the investment committee at St. Jude children's research hospital in Memphis. And so, you know, which had $7 billion and, you know, has a lot of smart people there advising them. And, and so in seeing that and seeing enough financial advisors and how, what they do, what I thought was missing in the mutual fund space is a real understanding of how alternatives, how hedge funds can help you mm-hmm. um, in have a better, more diversified portfolio. And so that was that, that I started a foundation with Boone Pickens. So T Boone Pickens and I, he passed away in 2019 and we were good friends. I was a pallbearer at his funeral. We had, yeah, we had a lot of, he, he was very kind to me and, and mm-hmm. was a mentor to me and his ranch was 30 miles away from our town here um that i live in now it's canadian texas he's up the river, river on the canadian river so he and i in oh in 2008 my brothers and i had sold him a 12,000 acre ranch we were his neighbor and we sold him that ranch and he and i got to visiting about some of the charitable things he was doing and we and i was encouraging him to give more money to the to these two counties, these two small counties, total population amongst the two counties is about 5,000 people. So mm-hmm. he and I, I put up $2 million. He put up $2 million. We started the Pickens Abraham Foundation and I was able to be king of my own investment co- committee, Kyle. And so that's where <laughs> I said, okay, I'm going to do this, the endowment model, the way it ought to be done, which is stocks, bonds, and the right alternatives. And that's what, and so for 10 years, I did that and that, that went really well and was a proof of concept to me. And then, so then in 18, my team and I just said, Hey, we ought to open this up as a mutual fund. Mm -hmm. And so that's what we did. And that's the, that's the Abraham Fortress fund now, which is, which is the, our main focus now. And, and it's, it's good too, because I'm 56 and wanted to slow down a little bit, you know, from working 60 hour weeks, you know, maybe 
30 hour weeks is a slowdown. And so, um, so, so I, I love the markets, love math. And that's, you know, that's been the journey. And then, and then also during that time, we also did, um, at the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, we were the very first firm to enter orders um, electronically. So what they call now, oh, high frequency really? trading now, we had memberships on those exchange. We got memberships on the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, Chicago Board of Trade. And so doing index arbitrage and market making on the the ETFs, the index ETFs like the Spiders, then the mm-hmm. S&P Futures. And then we also traded the NASDAQ 100 stocks back then in and that was from 98 to 2000, uh, to through 2005. Mm-hmm. And so we, um, yeah, that was, that's fascinating and a lot of fun. Um, but a lot of work too. And so, so that's, so I've kind of had a very interesting, uh, I've had a fun time doing interesting things and, and along the way been able to have math. Yeah. Math make me <laughs> money. Oh, I love that. Uh, okay. Well, there's a lot to unpack in that. So let's let's go back to the first thing that I want to ask you about. Um, the town. So that I, I saw that on your LinkedIn profile. Your town is called Canadian? Yes. Yeah, it's on the Canadian, Canadian. River. Yeah, Canadian. Oh, okay. Yeah, Canadian, like someone from Canada. Yeah. And um, yeah, and it's the Canadian River um, that runs from eastern New Mexico across the northern part of Texas, the Texas Panel at Top Square, and then over into Oklahoma. So... Does it go to Canada at all? Nope. You know, what, <laughs> what, yeah, no, no. Well, and it's not clear why it's called the Canadian River. The best explanation I've seen, which I think is right, is that on the eastern side of the Canadian River, they had some French Canadians that had a trading post um, in the mid 1800s and or early 1800s because it, it was called the Canadian River from way back. So at some point, they these Canadian traders had the there's trading post on that river. And okay. So, so that's what I think. That's where it comes from, I think. So what do you call somebody from Canadian then? Oh, they're a Canadian. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. Canadian night. I don't know. <laughs> Canadian in? <laughs> yeah, maybe. I don't know. I don't know. Okay. You, you, right. you call them by their name because you know them. If you, <laughs> if, right. Okay. You say, Fair hey, <laughs> Because everybody knows everybody. <laughs> All right. Uh, next question I got. You said you majored in finance from Notre Dame. Right. Now, one of the, the things that I think people struggle with is finding like education when it comes to markets. Like, How much did that education help you on the path that you ended up taking? Or was that like not like not the same thing? Like, Did the, the courses that you took like teach you how to like actually trade futures, look at structure, that kind of stuff? Or No, it- not really. I, I had some, I think the basic fundamentals I learned at Notre Dame. Um, what I what I did that made money, they told me, one professor at Notre Dame told me would not work. Mm-hmm. So, and I started to kind of debate with him. And then I thought, why, am I, <laughs> why do I care what he thinks? Why don't you just show him? Yeah. yeah. Why, why, why am I going to have him educate all these smart kids coming through after me? And so, yeah, no, I was a junior at Notre Dame and in a, in a, in a markets, financial markets class. And, um, he kind of dismissed technical analysis and mm-hmm. I discussed with him and he, anyway, so I would say that, you know, a formal education is helpful in a lot of ways for trading. It's not a make or break deal. You can learn a lot of it on your own, the fundamentals. And then uh, the things that, that I did, they didn't teach me at Notre Dame, the math. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just, it was just me. You know, if anything is more 
a statistics class made more sense or a right. You know, there was a finite mathematics class I took at Notre Dame, which is, you know, just that's that's a fun subject in that, you know, it's basically the the odds of numbers, you know, where you're looking at like like we've got our lot, the big lottery or whatever you say, OK, what's what are the odds? How do you figure the odds of winning something mm -hmm. like that? And so, you know, understanding probabilities is helpful and that's finite mathematics. That was a good class. Statistics is a good class. You know, so in some ways, the the math would have been better than the finance classes. It's so. interesting because I think we're starting to kind of learn that as as uh, uh, we learn more about futures, uh, speaking to me in the group and the uh, the Discord, right? That it, it seems like the, the having a, a real understanding of the probabilities and expected outcomes is, is really where the edge lies. Like yes. being able to collect data effectively and be able to analyze it and extrapolate, you know, thesis out of that. No, Kyle, I agree. Yeah, and you and the other piece that I think people. They, the the longer you trade, the more you understand the importance of risk management, and mm -hmm. um, so you tend to start off trading too large, and and really the the need for diversification and the the real power of diversification. You know, Harry Markowitz won Nobel a Nobel Prize in 1990 on modern portfolio theory. Um, he had done the math many years earlier, but he but just the concept of it is pretty fascinating and. So, and if you're a real math geek, you ought to look into it more and just say, okay. I like math. What's the, yeah. uh, what was the name? Again? So, uh, Harry Markowitz and, and modern portfolio theory. And you look at what he did, but then you start, you know, you just, uh, the best way to do math is get out a spreadsheet and start playing and throwing around numbers and seeing what happens. And, and you can, you can put, you know, you can have scenarios where you see, well, okay, how would diversification help me? And, I found you can't explain it. You've got to show it with numbers. Mm -hmm. And so if you look at the number, the, the the math behind diversification, it's really fascinating. And it's you, you'd say, oh, yeah, with diversification, we got to do that. Everybody says you got to do it. OK, yeah. And you go, no, 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 I do the math. And then when you do the math, which I would say out of 100 people, maybe uh, probably out of 1,000 people, one person does the math. Yeah. And if you do the reasonable. math. Yeah, then you go and you say, all right, this is really powerful. And that's really the power behind, you know, what we do with the Fortress Fund now. Mm -hmm. And we just, you know, you we, I, but I loved everything I did trading. We loved doing it. Um, it's just, you know, at some point you say, well, I'm going to do something. I'd like to slow down and you try to see how to do that. And and this mutual fund, that's where we've ended up with that but but let's stay on futures for a bit we'll get to the mutual fund. well yeah i wanted to kind of ask more about the transition uh, you said you did really well for the first 20 years and then right. it kind of started to slow down after that but that also sounds like about the time when you were started playing with the the endowment and like the seeds for the idea of the mutual fund started to to show right or sprout i would say no that's right so do you think do you think that the the decline in performance with the futures trading was because like your passion was starting to shift? No, no, because I I I mean it it was what what happened is I believe the markets when you had the Fed start and central banks across the world. So 2008, mm -hmm. great recession, you know, we start lowering rates and really what you started getting was a market where it was less I would say less free in that you have 
really central bankers taking a much more active role in in really manipulating the market the way they felt like it, you know, not mm-hmm. not in a bad way. They just felt like, well, we need to have lower interest rates. Well, how are we going to do that? Well, we're going to buy, we're going to basically they print money and you you go buy, you know, treasuries of their country, the central bankers. And so then you bid up the price of something and, you know, the treasuries and then it's interest rates are lower. There you go. And so, huh. so you end up with that. Well, when you, when you, so, so many commodity futures trading, you know, a big segment are, are interest rates and currencies and currencies typically will be moved by, you know, interest rate differentials between countries. Like now we have the strong dollar. Well, mm-hmm. surprise, surprise here, the United States has one of the highest interest rates and they've taken the lead on it. You know, the tenure, you know, if you look at us 10 years, they're, you know, over four, about four and a quarter. Mm-hmm. And, you know, where you have Japan at 0.25 still, and you have even say, you know, a lot of European countries in the two to three and a half range. And mm-hmm. so, you know, the money goes to where they're paying the most interest. And so they, it would naturally mean this US dollar gets stronger. So, uh, so, okay. so, but if you okay. go, so there's two markets, they mess up the fed, the central bankers mess up when they go and they say, all right, let's put a headlock on rates and let's hold them low mm-hmm. and let's all do that together. Well, if everybody's doing it together, suddenly you've got the bond markets, the interest rate markets, which there's a lot of interest rate futures to trade. Those, you know, don't move much. And then you get the currencies don't move much. And, you know, a market that does not move, if it moves zero, none at all. Let's say we've put crude oil, we peg it at $100 and we never let it move. Right. You can't make money trading it, right? Nope. So, so that's where I think... I think that's where you saw really managed futures as an industry within as a subset of hedge funds. Mm-hmm. That group it didn't have as many trading opportunities. And so, you know, in the, over the last 10 years now, the last couple, three years have been great. Right. And, you know, so about the time we got out, which is fine, we, you know, people say, well, you wish you'd, you know, do you ever think of starting it back up? I'm like, no, we like what we're doing now. We, we like the slower pace of the mutual fund. We like, it's more like, it's like a baseball player saying, I want to retire from baseball. I want to manage a team. Yes, exactly. And you see that and, and, and you see that people can really have a, you know, it's a, it's another chapter in their work life, but one that they really enjoy. And that's, so that's what we're doing with this mutual fund now. But the, the trading, I think, I think a lot of it still works just fine. It's just, you can't, Mm -hmm trade a market that you can't make money in a market that's going to be, you know, that's, that's really manipulated in, right. in that way, that heavily. Um, markets that are manipulated are kind of scary too, because they can, they can move in a huge way. So right. like, okay, like let's talk the crash of 87. So I had been trading for two months. I'm in college taking 21 hours at Notre Dame. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so I, I was short Euro dollar uh, the interest rate, the 90 day Euro dollars that we, they didn't have Euro dollar currency. They had Deutschmarks back then and French francs and oh, I remember that. Italian lira, all that. So, <laughs> yeah, but so, but they had the Euro dollar interest rates. So I was short uh, the U S 30 year futures, the 10 year futures and Euro dollars going into that. And so on October, you know, so October 16th, the Friday stocks are down 5%. October 19th, S and P is down 20 one twenty-two percent, twenty-two. So you're down twenty-seven percent two days. So those days were fine for me. <laughs> October twentieth, 
was the day of reckoning for Salem, where the the Fed, the central bankers came in, you have the, you know, it comes in and lowers interest rates two and a half percent and in one day. So they dropped the, the Fed funds rate two and a half percent and they cut so so Euro dollars went up uh, 250 points. It was a 37 standard deviation move. Oh, wow. Yeah. And and I was on the wrong side of it. So I had a $50,000 account that had grown to 66000 over two months and then got cut in half on October 20th of 1987 to 33000 which at the time I, I recognized, I'm like, that's the biggest one day loss percentage wise ever in the stock market's history, more than the stock market crash of 1929, as far as a one day move. And, mm-hmm. and I was in it and I got really run over, but I survived and and then I thought, well, this is a, what a great lesson when you're first starting out. And and you know, then you think back to your statistics class and they talk about three standard deviations and 99.7% of everything is within three standard deviations. And the lesson learned is that 0.03%. Yeah, that's the, that's there. the most important thing is, you know, the things outside of three standard deviations are the things that kill you and the things that make you go broke. And so you need to worry way more about that. And the sad thing for us math people is really it's you can't model that. You can't come up with a formula. Sort of there's almost an art to saying, okay, what could happen and how bad could it be? Right, right. So that sounds like that was your first lesson in risk management too. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I thought, you know, and I was, I had some, some kind of standard things I was trying to do. You know, you want to have, you know, different bets and you want to equalize those bets. Um, And, you know, how do you, you know, the fancy word is risk parity that Ray Dalio uses. So that's the the country folks just call it equalizing your risk across trades. Mm -hmm. And so anyhow, so that's, that's what you want to do. And, and that I did that, but you've got to know that extreme things will happen. And so you've got to say, look, you, you know, we all are trading career. Let's say it's a 50 year career over 50 years. We're going to have, we're going to see some really big financial storms and maybe five, maybe once every 10 years. And one of them is going to be really, really big. And so you say, how do I trade every day so that when that big financial storm shows up, the 50 year storm shows up, I survive. And you, so that's where you can't, you know, that's the saying they said about pilots and traders, you know, there's old traders and bold traders, but not many old, bold traders. Right, right, right. (laughs) Don't be too bold. You got to say, look, we're going to, and you got to be ready to run and you get to be, you know, your, your kind of pride and say, oh, I'm brave. I'm tough. I'm always like, no, 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 no. I am the biggest chicken. And the first sign of trouble I'm running. Mm-hmm. And I'm getting out of this trade and I'm going to be safe. So, yeah. So you learn to have no shame in being a big chicken. Right. Because the, the bold people are the ones that um, they go broke. So, well, yeah, the whole idea is, I mean, you want to be able to trade tomorrow. Right. 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 And you can't trade tomorrow if you go broke today. Exactly. And, you know, and you think about Kyle, what, so let's say you're right. Yeah, I see some traders that are way better traders than me smarter than me, you know, but, but they can't manage the risk. And so, you know, let's say we have someone that's 99 times out of a hundred, they're right. But if they bet as we, you know, as we say in the country, bet the ranch on every trade, you know, they're going to lose it all on that one trade. You know, that's yep. so, so even if you're right, 99 out of a hundred and I tell people, I said, look, I've had trades where 
you know, or deals that I would say, man, this is a for sure deal. I would still say even a for sure deal, you know, your limit has got to be somewhere 20, 25% of your net worth on any deal. Cause you see people betting their entire net worth on a deal and you're like, never, ever do that because mm-hmm. you don't know and what's going to happen. And so I just think, I think that's, that's dangerous. Now, um, you know, a lot of people make a lot of money that way, but um, it works till it doesn't. Right. Right. Well, and there's another thing that's interesting too, is the diminishing kind of utility of more money. And it's a concept with betting that you, most people don't think through. It's like, okay, let's say you had a 90% coin, Kyle. And I said, you can, do you want to bet on the 90%? And I would, normally I would say, yeah, absolutely. And then, right. oh, and he said, do you always bet on it? You say, yes, no matter what, no matter what, why would you not? It's 90%. You say, okay, well, um, then let me set the scenario. Then you're betting everything you own today on it. And let's say you've got, someone's got a net worth of whatever, whatever the net worth is, this, whatever it is. You say, so, so like if you lose, if it's the 10%, there's a 10% chance you empty your pockets. I'll let you keep the clothes, the shoes on your feet, the clothes on your back. And that's it. Uh-huh. And you say, but you could double your net worth too. You got a 90% chance of doubling your net worth. And you end up, you just say, wow, if I've got to bet everything. And so that's a helpful. Yeah. Is it worth it? Yeah. That's a helpful yeah. thought kind of exercise to help people understand. You go, well, what about half of everything? Or what about a quarter of everything? And you go, you start going, well, you know, you, you know, that's where diversification, you get back to the power of diversification, because if you had a hundred coins and, and there were 90% coins and you'd said, I will bet whatever, you know, whatever you, I'll bet my entire net worth every time on all those coins. spread out on all those coins, all those. Coins. Yeah, Absolutely. And, and I'll just, I'll be laughing all the way to the bank all the time. And I will never go broke because the scenario that, you know, out of a hundred coins, the one, you know, they all come up the wrong way. You know, when it's a 90% coin, you're like, it's just almost impossible as long as the game is a fair game. So, right. So risk management and diversification, as I've uh, kind of matured in the finance world, I would say to your listeners, those are the very most important things. And once you've got those right, then you say, okay, now I need to make good bets. Mm-hmm. So so you, you mentioned the learning a lot of the education kind of on your own or, or outside of school. Like what were some of the things that really helped or that you wished maybe you found sooner in your journey? Um, like are there any books or yeah. any people that you follow? Well, or- I think things like where, you know, where, where I got the most benefit was – Jack Swagger, he wrote, you know, Market Wizards and New Market Wizards. Mm-hmm. Those books, what they did, what you do now with podcasts, is you get people that, you know, the experts in the field, and you can and you can read back then, read the words of those experts. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, I think hearing a voice like we're doing now is even better. And because you can hear the inflection and what they stress and what the, you know, the real, you can get more out of it than just the the text. Right. So it's... Yeah, no, I, I think like the Market Wizards books, they were good. I think, uh, you know, Michael Cavell, he's written a lot on trend following. There's some other uh, trend following books out there too, but Cavell has a lot of good ones. You know, but you can learn too from, you know, you read about, say, someone like a Warren Buffett or, um, you know, so there's a lot of ways you can, anytime you're learning from others who've been down the, the road, I think that's that's the best. And um, I think the hardest thing... The hardest thing with that, though, is knowing like who to believe. 
Oh, you believe the people that have made money? Yeah. Yes. Yes. That's easy. Yeah. But it's uh, it's it's a lot harder to verify that these days. Oh yeah. No. No. Well, and you know that that is one thing on the future space. Um, people say, "Well, you guys had a hedge fund, and you don't have to." You know, you didn't. And I, I had one of my one of my eight kids had said to me the other day, "Well, you know, I've heard hedge funds didn't have to really publish their results." And I said, "Well, that's true of most hedge funds, but if you're a managed futures hedge fund." It would mean you're a commodity trading advisor. You're regulated by the Commodity Futures Trading Commission. You, if you have a fund, you're audited. You, you know, you do everything is everything is is regulated, much like a mutual fund. You're like, how would you mm-hmm. make a mutual fund? Or and and in the I would say in the futures world with a futures hedge fund, unlike stock hedge funds. You know, like say Bernie Madoff had no regulation mm-hmm. and the SEC said, no, you don't, you're all your investors are accredited. So you have zero regulation on the CFTC side. You're regulated if you trade futures. So, so I would say those people, you could verify their results better than, you know, if it's, if it's a stock hedge fund, you know, then it could be, you know, you're like, well, how's this not a Bernie Madoff, right? Right. <laughs> right. Where it's a lie. But, but so that's, Yeah. Find the people who've made money and figure out. And learn from them. Yeah, learn from them. That's what I would try to do. And that's what I tried to do. And there, there's a lot of great traders out there that, you know, that everybody is willing to share some ideas. And, you know, because we all benefited from other people sharing ideas. Is that why everybody likes to pay it forward? I think Just so. Just because it's so yeah. hard to get the education? That- yeah, no. And I think you realize, you know, you know, in the end, we're all in the ground with nothing and or, mm-hmm. or dust or ashes or whatever. And you just say, well. You know, you like to, yeah, it's, you know, it's a lot of fun to make money, but in the end, you know, uh, we all die broke. So, uh, you know, and you like right. to just say, well, this is fun to be able to help the next group. And, you know, the when you're younger, I think you're competitive and you want, you go, no, this is all, we're all, you know, we're all trying to run the race. And then after a while, you just say, you know, it's, it's, it's lonely. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, and it's, it's fun to share and help the next group and, yeah, no, I, I so it's uh, and we all benefit from sharing ideas. And in the end, you know, the, Zig Ziglar has a saying, you know, there's room at the top for everybody. There's plenty mm-hmm. of there's plenty. You know, it's not like a trade gets so crowded that only one person right. can have it always. Usually the trade is a lonely trade. You know, that's where my best trades have always been lonely trades. <laughs> and uh, yeah, if it's a crowded trade, it's probably not a good trade, Kyle. That's one right. of the lessons you learn. You're, you oh. look around, you have a lot of company and you're like, no, this is a sucker play at this point. I need to get out. So when the, when the party gets wild and crazy and everybody's thinking they're smart, that's when you need to leave. Cause that's when, uh, yes, yes. Yeah. Like when your uh, when your, your cab driver starts mentioning the uh, Tesla. Right. Right. Like, oh, okay. Maybe this is time to get out. Yeah. Oh, that's right. That's right. Although, you know, my grandfather. <laughs> Longtime fans of the show should be familiar with the lender formerly known as Sue Pullen, and I'm pleased to announce that she's back, fresh off a rebrand and ready to help as Sue Mackey. Sue is a certified mortgage advisor at Fairway Independent Mortgage, an equal housing lender who focuses on finding the right product for you and your needs. She has over 20 years of experience helping thousands of homeowners. Whether it's purchasing, refinancing, or even a reverse mortgage, Sue will help. Sue's licensed in 36 states now, so reach out and let Sue Mackey it happen for you. The best way to reach her is just give her a call at 520-977-7904 or in an email, spullen at fairwaymc.com. Fairway Independent Mortgage has an MLS number of 2289. Sue Mackey has an MLS number of 206048. That email again, 
S-P-U-L-L-E-N at fairwaymc.com. And that phone number is 520-977-7904. Shoot Sue an email and let her know she needs to update that address. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors, and add blocks. No custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise, and with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite. When I started, my grandfather was a very successful business guy and he here in Texas, in, in Canadian Texas. And so I, when I told him I was going to trade futures, because he had helped with, you know, the $50,000 to be a college student back in 88 and have 50,000 was, I was, that was unusual. And that was yeah. thanks to my grandfather had given me some money to help, you know, basically to invest and to do something with it. Um, you know, and here I was going to trade futures. And so he said to me, he said, you know, of all the ways to lose money, why in the heck you have to pick the fastest one? <laughs> and I'm like, oh, come on. And he said, and, you know, and, and you see people that go broke in futures. And so futures is one that, you know, you either learn how to manage the, the risk or you go broke. Yep. And so, you know, it's very much like, you know, the difference between driving on a highway or driving for, you know, a race car. And you're like, no, if you, if you at, at 250 miles an hour, if you do it wrong, you're, you could end up dead. Right. But, and, and so that's with futures. You, you, because you know, I know a lot of your listeners are futures traders and you've got to be very, very careful with futures. So that's it's all about that risk. Yeah. You know, it's kind of like a it, you, you feel like if you do it right in futures, you're really like it's like having a Lamborghini that you only tried to drive in first gear. And people are like, what are you doing? You got a Lamborghini. You never get out of first gear, Kyle. You're like, well, I'm not dead either. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a great so, point. So you use it just <laughs> enough, and but there's a lot of the, the great thing about futures is the diversification you can get. I mean, imagine the different bets you can make that are not correlated. I mean, if you're mm. betting on, you know, coffee and you're betting on crude oil, and um, or the Japanese yen versus U.S. dollar, you know, you've got three different bets on, and you go, those have nothing to do each other with each other. Whereas you could be trading, let's say Tesla and Apple and Netflix. And you're like, well, odds are every day right. they're going to move the same. Mm-hmm. So different names doesn't mean behavior different from a mathematical perspective. But if you look at futures, you can get much broader diversification, which is awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, let's, uh, let's, let's kind of pivot now and talk more about like what you're doing with the, uh, the, the fun Fort Fortex. Yeah, F-O-R-T-X is a symbol. Yeah, Fortress Fund, the Abraham Fortress Fund is the mutual fund. What it does, it it what we've tried to do, again, kind of the, to the baseball analogy of trying to hire your own baseball traders, we we do, mm-hmm. so we did used to do stock index arbitrage, right? So we understand how to index. And so what we do is we pretty much index our stock exposure. So we have stocks, we have fixed income, and we have alternatives, and they all, the diversifying strategies. 
is the way it's defined in the prospectus, which is which is hedge funds. We have currently our diversifying strategies are we have seven different hedge funds we invest with third party hedge funds, okay. not a, not our own. You know, we do, we don't have a hedge fund anymore. We have just this mutual fund. That's the only thing we do. Um, so we invest with these um, seven third party hedge funds, and then we invest. We do a little bit of trading every once in a while ourselves, like we, we and we typically always have some long exposure to gold. Uh, mm-hmm. We usually ten percent uh, notional long exposure to gold with futures. We do that because, um, and so there's there's this diversifying component that we put somewhere between it, we we're ten to thirty percent of our cash in it. We tend to have there's a little bit of leverage in there, so it ends up being. About thirty-five to thirty-five percent exposure is where it would be today, and then um, we have stocks at fifty percent, five zero fifty percent, and then mm-hmm. fixed incomes at fifteen. So, and our fixed income is U.S. Treasuries. So, what we're trying to build here, Kyle, is and the idea, the name of Fortress Fund is a fortress from the financial storms. You say, how do you build something that can can fare and and weather the storm better than you know, given the tools you have. And mm-hmm. and that's our answer to that question is, well, given our understanding of alternatives, if you go to the right hedge funds, you can plug those hedge funds in and make it work um, and have a better portfolio. So that's, we're trying to do that is use our understanding of the hedge fund space to build a, a more stormproof portfolio um, than most people do have. Uh, I'm looking at the uh, the stock exposure, just kind of seeing where like your your investments are broken up, and I noticed that there's uh, at least as of December 21st of last year, there was a uh, uh, about 24 percent in tech. I was curious if you're still that heavily invested in tech, or if you guys have uh, reduced that. Well, it's what we've done is it's it's still similar to what it was then because mostly we've indexed it. We, okay. So what we do is we're not stock pickers. We're very much top down. We we just want the exposure to the stock market and we just do a no cost stock. You know, again, if you do index arbitrage, you know how to build an index, which we do. So we just build our own index. And so if you look at the percentages there, it's it's like an index except mm-hmm. for one sector. You know, so if we do anything, we tend to do it in a sector and the sector that's heavy right now and has been heavy as utilities. Yes, so, I see that too. Yeah, so utilities is we've overweighted utilities. We did that back about a year ago, and so what we did about a year ago was before Thanksgiving. We we had of uh, last year we had twenty percent exposure to to U.S. Treasuries at a duration of eight years. Mm-hmm. We cut that to fifteen percent, and we have uh, exposure and six year duration. So we did that because, you know, the Fed was clearly uh, showing and telling everyone, hey, rates are going to start rising. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing we did, we have we had about 50 percent exposure to stocks, but we had stock exposure with the stocks themselves, but also stock index futures. So sometimes we use and we'll use EFA futures and, U- and S&P futures to get um, exposure to stocks that way. So about really about 60% of our exposure is actual stock names and mm-hmm. about 40% of our stock exposure is through, you know, is notionally through futures trades. So if someone looks at what we were holding, you'd see, you know, some like EFA futures was how we give our, get our non-US uh, stock exposure. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so we've got that and then the fix, but the idea see is, is 
but most people have like 70, 80% stocks. And that's not right. I mean, that's, that's not diversified. Right. I mean, you, you may have a diversified portfolio of stocks. That's fine. But if, you know, let's say you have a great, the, the Great Depression and you've got stocks going down, you know, in the Great Depression, uh, stocks were down right around 80%. And that's if you include dividends. If you don't include dividends, it's like someone say 89%. But oh, oh, I've seen 79% including dividends. So if you include, which is the right way to do it. So if that happens and you're, you know, 80% exposed to stocks, you know, 80 times 80, you know, you're 64, you know, percent loss there and you don't have fixed income helping you. So, so I, that, I think 80, 70, 80% exposure is too much. That's what most endowments have. And I just say, I think that's too much. So in the Fortress Fund, we have 50%. We, we, our range is 40 to 60. We tend to be 40 to 50 is where mm -hmm. we tend to range. And, you know, again, we're top down. So sometimes we'll lower it, like going into in January of last year, we, um, we lowered it to 40% exposure. And um, when Russia was surrounding Ukraine, for instance, yeah, yeah, we lowered our stock exposure to 40, but we also put on 5% long crude oil because we mm -hmm. felt like that would be a hedge on our stocks. We said, well, if Russia invades Ukraine, we think stocks are off somewhere three to 5%, but we think oil is up. And we liked the oil trade anyway. We said, well, if we were still trading our hedge fund, we would be long oil anyway. It mm -hmm. was a good uptrend market. And we said, all right, we let's put on 5% notionally funded. It's a notional 5%. So of Brent crude oil. And that helped hedge our stocks some there. So things like that we'll do occasionally that, you know, having traded in 90 different futures markets around the globe, 24 hours a day. Yeah. You, yeah. You don't mind. You working. pick up some things. Yeah. You pick up some things. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, you can say, well, you could go, one of the trades is you could get long wheat, um, you know, on Ukraine, but we said, well, we didn't want to get, we do that. But I mean, there are times that you could do, uh, you know, you can put on trades in markets that protect you because stocks, the best way, you know, the most straightforward way to protect yourself in stocks is to buy puts, but that's a dumb way. I mean, mm -hmm. it's usually way too much, too pricey. So I you right. shouldn't, that's like, look, you're, that, come up with a creative way that if, if the event happens, it's going to knock stocks down. What else is going to happen that you could make money off? So that's an excellent way of thinking about it. So that brings me then to uh, utilities, because you mentioned that pre-market too. The, the energy markets is something that you are, I would say, currently bullish on. Yes. Yeah, no. Utilities. Well, we like utility stocks because we think they can adjust for inflation. You know, they can weather an inflation storm better and mm -hmm. because they can raise prices. Um, so but then also just the energy space. And we haven't expressed this as much. We see some of our hedge fund traders um, doing that. And so what we've seen this year with the like the hedge funds, what they've done this year with us, you know, they they've made up for losses in stocks and fixed income. Our hedge funds of the seven we've got, they're between flat and up 28 percent. But mm -hmm. um, on average, you know, we, we have 35 percent exposure on average, you're up 20 percent. So we're making 700 basis points in our in that component that was designed to be diversifying. Um, not really a hedge. It's, it, it, you know, people say, well, when they're going to make money when stocks go down. You go, no, we hope they make money all the time. This is a this is a big year. They make money when markets are volatile, typically. Right, so, right, right. So if you make 700 basis points there and the stocks and, you know, the, the stocks and the bonds are losing, you know, about uh, 11%, then you go 11 to 12%. So that puts us down about the five that we're down this year. So anyhow, so the risk is, you know, you're, they, and there's risk to that. So 
it doesn't always work that way, but that's how it's worked this year. And that's how we try to do it. But so what we like about, you know, the, the hedge fund traders we had, they made good money in energy this year doing trading in the, mm-hmm. the energy markets. But we also personally, we see, you know, we're bullish um, any energy, green energy, oil and gas, whether it's carbon or green energy is it's it's hard to do energy, Kyle. Yeah. And so oil and gas to drill wells, the cost of drilling wells has gone up about 70 percent. The cost of building windmills, you know, and, uh, you know, wind turbines and solar cells, all that mm-hmm. takes material. And that material has gone up in price. Steel pipe has gone up about just a little more than double since um, a year ago. Yep. So in the last 12 months, if steel pipe goes up, you're like, OK, you need that for all kinds of energy, really any kind of construction. Mm-hmm. And so those things are going to, I've said, you know, like in oil, a hundred dollar oil is a new 50 and 200 is going to be the new 200 or 200 is going to be the new hundred because normally here we're at 90, $95 oil. Normally you'd have people drilling like crazy, but the, yeah, we have less rigs now in the U S and worldwide than we had in December of 2019, active rig. So active drilling saying, we're going to go drill a new well because, man, we're going to make all this money. Well, so December 19th, before COVID, we had $60 oil then. We had $2 natural gas. Today, mm-hmm. we have $7 natural gas, three and a half times. And we've got, um, you know, 90, we, we've got a 50% on oil. So if, if you raise the price of something 50% and 300%, You'd say, well, they're going to get busy and get to work. And you go, no, they're actually about 7% less rigs active now than before. And you're like, well, what? That doesn't make any sense. Yeah, no. And then you get President Biden saying, these oil companies, they've got to go do this. this." He's mad and he's releasing oil from the Strategic Reserve. And I'm like, you know, and I, you know, whatever politics you believe, you say, that's not a good idea. This, This Strategic Reserve was not designed for politics. And, and winning friends, it's designed as a safety net for the U.S. Right. So he's going to run out of oil. He's making OPEC mad. He's making oil and gas companies mad because he's saying all this stuff. And you go, you go, you got to look at this situation. It's like if you were to build a house today. And most people can relate to that more and say, wow, it's going to cost so much to build this new house. I'm just going to go buy an existing house. Well, the costs are up. It's more expensive it's, you know, so you'd say, look, it's not as profitable right now because of the cost going up. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, if everyone looks at these prices and they're thinking pre-inflation prices and you go, look, inflation works with everything. And the cost of drilling these wells, the cost of making the oil is just like when you go to the store or you go to a restaurant, and you look at the food prices, and you're like, why are these food prices through the roof? And so to me, oil, I think 150 minimum you know, I see 12 to 24 months out, $150 minimum, and, and I think it hits $200 a barrel. Wow. At some point, 12 to 24 months out. And people are going to be mad and thinking everybody's all oh, these oil companies or whoever. And I think, but it's like, well, why don't we go the the green people? Go price a turbine. Yeah, yeah. You have a solar cell. Let's do that. And you're like, well, that's up. And, you know, buy a new car, buy a new tractor, buy, you know. Everything's going to be up. Go, go, buy, go buy a 30-foot joint of, you know, of pipe. Uh, and you're like, it's all up. And so for the, uh, and so anyhow, now that's interesting too, though, Kyle, 
back to stocks. Well, before we do that, I just I, mean, I do remember seeing at one point energy or oil producers in the U.S. saying that they weren't going to restart production even if prices got like you know the, I think they said like ninety five or a hundred. And is that well, so? Is that so, the reasoning then? Is uh, that no? Well, so the the restarting they they'll produce. So think of a think of a well as like having a rent house. Mm-hmm. You build a rent house. And then you you rent it out, right? But what they're not going to do is drill new right, wells. Right, right, yes. So 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 like the rent house guys say, well, I can't afford to build a new rent house because rent houses have you know to build a rent house is up, mm-hmm. you know, seventy percent. I I can't, you know, I'm just going to rent the ones I've got and raise the rent on the ones I've got, right. but I'm not going to build new houses. And so so that's what they're not doing is drilling a new well mm-hmm. to make more supply. They've got well, I've got these wells that are. You know, they they we we make this, you know, 11, 12 million barrels a day in the United States. Those are producing fine, but I'm not going to go drill any new ones because the cost is so high. So that's the problem. So then to tie that back to stocks before I so rudely interrupted you. No, no, no. So (laughs) we'll see that's that's stock. So so inflation affects everything. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think what people forget, Kyle, is that inflation it's they'd like to compartmentalize it and put it in and just say these things are going to be inflated, but everything inflates across the board, including earnings of companies. So this is something people haven't talked about much that I think is going to be interesting for stocks. Mm-hmm. So if you look at Argentina and you look at inflation in Argentina since 2010 to now and judge inflation by the devaluation of their money, which is what inflation really is, their money being worth less. So so if you look at it, okay, how many pesos does it take to buy a U.S. dollar? So the dollars are the benchmark of inflation mm-hmm. to them devaluing their currency. Well, their currency annually gets devalued forty to fifty percent a year. It, it took four, it was four uh, Argentinian pesos back in twenty ten to buy a dollar. It's now like three hundred. So um, so that's a long slide of inflation that's there. So but their stock market has gone up 40 to 50% a year. So that's what's huh. fascinating is people, they, again, they want to just say, well, you know, this is, you know, just my, you know, the hamburger meat, that's all it's going up or gasoline's going up. You go, no, everything will be higher, including earnings of mm-hmm. companies. So when you do a discount model on, you know, on stocks, you say, well, we're, you know, we're higher interest rates means lower bond prices, lower stock prices. Yes. But if we inflate earnings on stocks, not on bonds, but on stocks, we can, the, the, you know, if Apple, if every, if the, if the revenue of, of Apple goes up 20%, the expenses go up 20%, still their profits 20% higher. So once we get to that point where people kind of get their footing at this new inflated, all these higher numbers, they'll, you'll see higher earnings on, you'll see this earnings increase with companies having higher earnings. And I think that is that's where I think the bottom is in for the stock market too. Mm, okay. So I think that part's not baked in. I think all the negative news is baked in. And I think at some point here in the next, you know, six to 12 months, China is going to be back. You know, they're going to do away with COVID zero, maybe in the, even in the next month or two, sounds like possibly. And so you get, you get rid of COVID zero in China, you get COVID completely, you know, in the rear view mirror, everyone all over the globe is going. There, you know, there's no supply chain issues, but prices are going to be higher across the board. If you had, you know, 25% to prices of everything, you know, and, and wages, everything goes up. Suddenly you look around, you go, oh, earnings are higher. So really, we didn't lose any ground on stocks, but we the, the higher interest rates, that hurt us. But 
you may have two, you know, I think, I think that's been priced in. Hmm. So that higher interest rate priced in what's not priced in is the higher earnings, I don't think. And so I think the lows may be in and I'm, so that's what we're thinking. We went back on our mutual fund to 50%. Uh, we, we've been 50% stocks, um, which is really our peak for the last six weeks or well, more than that, two months. Yeah. Two months. Well, I, I think, uh, I mean, we're recording this before CPI comes out, uh, uh, for, for October's readings. Right. I think really like that's the big number everyone's waiting to see, right? Right. But I think though you got to, and I think the Fed needs to remember, we all need to remember, you know, you can start putting the brakes on, but the brakes are on, you know, and they're going to take a while to take effect. You're trying to slow down a train. Yeah. And so it's, yep. you know, it, this number won't be probably the number that the Fed's looking for. I know they're looking for, well, let's have it push, go in the right direction. And so, yeah, no, it'll be an interesting number. And I, but I just think that the real challenge as a trader is you don't want to, you want to be ahead of the crowd. And so you want to say what's gotten baked in and where will the crowd go next? That's the real challenge is what, what I think people don't do is I say, what happens next to the fourth power? And I'm like, what happens next? Then what's next? Then what's next? And what's next? You get out four iterations of what's next. You put that puzzle together, you can make a lot of money. If you're just thinking what's next, mm -hmm. everybody's thinking what's next. So the way to get ahead of the crowd is you need to get several iterations out. And what I think happens next is I think the Fed has made their point. Um, they've done, you know, they've raised interest rates, but this isn't like we've never had. These are still low rates, historically. Right, yeah. right. So we're fine. The, the economy can be fine at this. And what happens next, too, is, well, if China does away with COVID zero. China gets back to work 100 um, percent. They start consuming more, um, you know, and then, uh, you know, some of these supply chain issues work themselves out. At some point, Russia, Ukraine works itself out. And then you start saying, OK, we're going to get back more of the status quo, regular ho-hum economy. And I think things, you know, I think things look pretty good there. What about with the Fed still uh, actively trying to reduce their balance sheet? Do you think the pulling of that liquidity yeah, still represents that is them? a bigger deal, I think, than raising rates. I think at some point they're going to have trouble. Right. There's a there's a debt problem worldwide that I think is going to it's going to come back to roost at some point. And I think there's more of a you know a currency issue with that. With worldwide, do is our currencies do they really mean anything if we're going to print them? You know the mm -hmm. way we do just you know, well, it also seems like there's a lot of foreign governments that are trying to get away from the dollar standard right. too. Right. Like, I think we've actually started seeing a lot of, some people starting to shift towards yen or yuan or however you say yep. the, the Chinese currency. Oh, the yuan. Yeah. 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 No, I agree. Yeah. No, they, there's, yeah, I think the dollar, you know, is still the reserve currency of the world, but it's going to be continued to be challenged. And I think given the money printing that the U S did during COVID, that calls it into question. You know, yeah, we printed 40% mm -hmm. more money. You know, you make 40% more of anything and the price is going to go down. Right. <laughs> you yeah. would think, right? Yeah. Uh, that's just supply and demand. Well, this idea, oh, this inflation's transitory. It's like, what about printing 40% more money? Yeah, no, there's, yeah, inflation was definitely caused by the money printing. Yeah. And, and you know, there was some of its transitory, this supply chain stuff, but the biggest part was that, and you, you know, normally you see the, the currency being about 50 to 60% of 
the, the money supply being 50 to 60% of the GDP. And that's been true back to the 50s, mm -hmm. even before, you know, we went off the gold standard. So you say, it's kind of like a poker game. How many chips do you need? It's like, well, how big is a poker game? And you go, okay, well, you need enough chips right. to have, you know, <laughs> and you kind of figure out how many chips at the poker table, given the size of the game. That's the way it is with money. And 50 to 60% ought to be the number. And worldwide, you know, or in the U.S., we went up to 90%. And so you say, what's going to happen? Well, then everybody starts, you know, paying too much for things. They bet bigger at the poker mm -hmm. table. You give everybody extra chips, they bet bigger. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So that's it. So, yeah. Um, Salem, this has been one heck of a conversation. I think you've given us some some awesome things to think about uh, going to the future, uh, especially like paying attention more to, like I, I definitely want to check out that Argentina inflation versus the the stock market performances because that, that's something that I've heard people talk about before where inflationary environments are usually good for the stock market, but I don't think I've ever actually watched it or looked at it like visually and seen it yeah. like, spelled out for me it's like a that. Good, so, it's, you know, because Argentina basically has just, they just have inflation all the time, but they don't go completely off the rails. And, you know, Ecuador, so here, here's, if you're going to do Argentina, if you take it a step further, you become like Ecuador. Ecuador, I, I was in the Ecuador and I saw their, their, um, Central Bank of Ecuador is now a museum and they use U.S. dollars. So so if you go too crazy, <laughs> right. that's where right. you end up. Your your Fed is going to be, your central bank is now a museum. And and it's a beautiful building and a beautiful museum, but it's, a, it's funny to me to be a museum and they use U.S. money there. So that's where I worry the U.S., you know, and that worldwide, we, if we all keep printing money, which I think we've, we're going to stop, but it's gotten to be yeah, you need to think of look at Ecuador too. Go look at the Central Bank of Ecuador, and you'll see a beautiful museum. And that's that's a quicker exercise. <laughs> I love that. A faster, easier exercise, but it's a it's one uh, that's instructive as well. So yeah, what happens when you really print a lot of money? <laughs> so <laughs> that's hey, well, Kyle, it's great to be with you, and, and I, I wish that your your listeners all the best. And and we we um you know I'm I'm rooting for you and and everybody out there trading. And yeah, we can all make money together and. Um, and be smart together and everybody, you know, there's different ways to do it. And so, yeah, so it's fun to be with you. Thanks for letting me hang out with you. No, today. thanks for, for joining us. It's uh, it's the successful guys like you that, that come on and, and share the knowledge and things that they've learned over their trading experience that really helps push us forward. So we really do appreciate you giving us the time. Uh, one last time for the listeners, uh, where can they, they find you if they want to check out and learn more about uh, Abraham Fortress? Yeah, they, if yeah, if your listeners want to learn more about Abraham Fortress Fund, yeah, our website's the best way to go, and it's at abrahamtrading.com, and there's lots of material there and the performance and everything they can find it there, Kyle. And then we'll also have your LinkedIn in case any people want to check you out. You bet. Yeah, LinkedIn. I'm active on it, and so yeah, go check that out too. All right. Well, thanks again for joining us, Salem, uh, and thanks again, listeners, for sticking around to the end. Uh, fortunately, you know, people like Salem have jobs and commitments, and they can't sit and chat with us all day long as much as we'd like that. But don't be afraid, because we'll be back at you guys soon with another amazing episode. So until then, take care. Two Bulls in a China Shop is an entertainment program, and all thoughts and opinions expressed in the show belong to the hosts and not of any company.
They are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual or on any specific security or investment product. It is only intended to provide entertainment about stocks and the financial industry of trading. If you make trades based on what you hear in this show, you assume all risks for those trades.